Friends, I'm going to read, reread what Brian read from 1 Samuel chapter 5. So we're going to be in the story, 1 Samuel 4 and 5. I just want to read again those first five verses of chapter 5. And maybe you noticed how comical it was, how many times Dagon's name is mentioned in chapter 5. It's 10 times in five verses, again and again and again. You're going to hear that now. 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so done hearing about Dagon. Again and again. But if we need to mention powers and principalities and snares and threats to our very soul, if by doing so we will see your glory and your victory shine all the brighter, then today we're going to talk about Dagon. And we're going to talk about the devil. And we're going to talk about forces that rage against you that cannot prevail. That's your victory. Let us see it, hear it, feel it in our hearts by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you guys know that we're going to fly through our Old Testaments in the spring semester, right? We kind of lingered a little bit in the fall semester. And so if we're going to get to the end of the Old Testament, we really got to move, which means we're skipping hundreds of years of history to get us from the Judges period to 1 Samuel. But all the while, God is working on the edges of history to bring about his kingdom. It's so small that it's easy for us to miss unless we're really paying attention. God raised up a judge like Gideon up in the north who was able to defeat the Midianites and free his tribe from their threat in the north. In the south, God converted a Moabite named Ruth who lived in Bethlehem and would become the great-grandmother of King David. Even now, God is grooming little Samuel. He's kind of like the last judge of the judges period. He's also a prophet and a priest. He's going to be the one to anoint the kings that will lead us in the monarchy. So the great wheel of history turns. Empires, they rise and fall. And all the while, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, young and old, they are pressed into God's purposes. God is going to grow his kingdom slowly and God is going to use broken people to do it. And we're going to do this thing God's way and we're not going to do it our way. God will do it. He will do it according to his purposes even when it doesn't look like much. So we zoom in. Coming out of the judges period, Saul isn't anointed king yet. We're still waiting for that. But Israel's in this land. She hasn't driven out all the enemies in Canaan, and her newest enemy are the Philistines. 
You can read about them in ancient Near East history. Other sources corroborate what the Bible is saying about these people. They're a sea people who have settled in the Gaza Strip. So they are to the west of Israel and they're pretty much the bane of everybody's existence. I mean, from Egypt all the way up through the land of Canaan, they really wreak havoc on the area, but they especially hate their neighbor Israel. I just read Ezekiel chapter 25, hundreds of years later, the prophet looks back on this relationship and this is what he says in Ezekiel 25, 15. The Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never ending enmity. That's how the Philistines feel about the Israelites. Bad news for the Israelites, the Philistines are united. They've got a well-disciplined army. They have state-of-the-art weapons. They're using iron before most other people are. Other armies are using bronze. They are a force to be reckoned with. And where we find them in the story, they've marched up in their territory to a city called Aphek, which is only a day's march from Israel's city of Shiloh. Now, remember, King David hasn't conquered Jerusalem. There's no king in Israel, so we don't really have a capital. But Shiloh is where the people have parked the tabernacle. And so if there was a capital, this would be like the center of Israel. So by coming up to Aphek and threatening Shiloh, the Philistines are going for the jugular. They know if they they capture Shiloh, they crush the tabernacle, they have defeated the heart and soul of Israel. They meet in battle, they fight, and Israel loses badly. Notice the first thing out of the elders' mouth in the face of suffering and defeat. It's in verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3. They lose and they say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now hang on a minute. (laughs) The Lord defeated you? I saw the Philistines and their army defeat you. But suffering and hardship has this knack of pulling back the thin veneer of a polite spirituality and exposing what we really, truly think about God. When life is going well, it's all smiling selfies and religious platitudes, right? Anybody can come in here and say the Apostles' Creed and greet one another in Jesus' name. Everything is great. But when stuff hits the fan... That's when we're exposed for what we really, truly think about God. I think about in a household when a spouse or a roommate forgets to put the cap on the toothpaste tube and you say to them, why can't you ever follow through with anything in your life? I mean, this is ridiculous. And it's like, whoa, (laughs) hang on a second. Are we still talking about toothpaste? Is that what this is about? It feels like there's something brewing underneath. And we do that in our relationship with God. I do that in small things. When there are things that annoy me, I lose my car keys, I get a flat tire, something is delaying me, somebody is annoying me, I can't help but think, God, why are you doing this to me right now? You know I'm trying to serve you. You know I'm trying to do your work. Why are you bringing this to me right now? I don't have the capacity to deal with it. And it's like, whoa, (laughs) we've just pulled back that, that thin veneer of serene spirituality and we've taken a pulse and maybe in my heart, I don't know that God is good and God is for me. 
Well, the elders, they chalk this immediately up to God's fault. And so they come up with a plan that looks like it involves God, but it actually doesn't. They go back to Shiloh and they grab the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about that back in Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant. It's a golden chest. It stays in the Holy of Holies. It's got the Ten Commandments inside of it. And God said, this is like my presence on earth. This in the Holy of Holies is like where my presence dwells. Of course, God dwells in all the earth. There's no specific place that can locate him, but this is as good as an Old Testament incarnation. I will make my presence felt wherever the Ark is. And so the Israelites figure if they grab the ark, if they bring it into battle, they kind of press God's hand. Surely he will give us victory because at least he's going to protect his ark, which he gave to us. Notice they reach for God's ark and not for God. That's easy to miss. There's no prayer here. There's no fasting. There's no repentance. There's no inquiring of the Lord. That happens in Israel's history at significant moments, but none of that is happening here. They reach past God to the trappings that surround God and presume that God's presence will be with them. But just because I do something in God's name or I do it with a proof text from God's book, or I presume that I know what God is up to in a certain set of circumstances, doesn't mean that God is going to act on my behalf in the way that I expect him to, because he's not a genie. The foolishness of presumption is a devious one. The road to hell is paved with presumption. The road to a fruitless Christian life, it is paved with presumption. The road to disappointment with God is paved with presumption. If I do for God, he'll do for me. If I scratch God's back, he'll scratch my back. If I'm doing the best I can, he'll get me out of the predicaments I've made for myself. And when he doesn't, I'm shocked and I'm confused And I wonder if he's really there. And I wonder if he really hears me. And I wonder if he's really for me. Israel grabs God's ark like we might grab a good luck charm. They take it into battle. And they lose badly again. Thousands die. The army melts away, retreats to their own households. Hophni and Phinehas the priests are killed. And the ark is captured by the Philistines. The sin of presumption, it had devastating consequences in Israel. Way back when Moses was alive, and I'm talking hundreds of years before this scene, at the end of Moses' life, he gathered the people of Israel together. They had heard God's covenant, and Moses said, There are blessings if we stay within the covenant. And there are real warnings and curses if we break God's covenant. Those warnings and curses and consequences, they're all in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and it's a brutal chapter. I heard an author say one time that when he signed books of his, he would sign them with Deuteronomy 29.29, which is that sweet verse that says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but he's revealed things to us, and it's just a nice 
little verse to sign things with. But one time in a rush, he was signing books and he signed one Deuteronomy 28.28 instead of 29.29. 28 is the chapter of curses. And I think it says something like, you will be struck with blindness and madness. <laughs> Fortunately, nobody ever looks at the reference you put at the bottom of a card, so you're safe. But that was really funny. The consequences in Deuteronomy 28 are brutal and they culminate with the heaviest judgment of all. You reject God and you reject his covenant, he will reject you and the penalty that falls on you is exile. Exile means that a foreign nation is gonna come, they're gonna conquer you, they're going to take you from this land, they're going to bring you to a land you don't know and Israel will cease to exist as we now know her. In other words, The wages of sin is death. I wonder if there was an Israelite alive in Samuel's day. Not many of them were hearing from the book of the law, but surely someone was alive that day who remembered Deuteronomy 28 and the curse that would befall them. And they wondered, is this it? This is our worst defeat to date. Our army has been obliterated. The ark has been captured Are we living in the days of Deuteronomy 28 and now the people of Israel will be exiled and we will be no more for our sin? If they did, they could not have begun to imagine the surprise God has in store for them. It's not Israel who goes into exile. It's God. Israel deserves to be dragged off to Philistine territory, but she isn't. Instead, it's God's ark that is dragged off to Philistine territory in her place. God absorbs the penalty that Israel deserves. God takes the exile on himself that was due to the people of Israel for her rebellion. The Philistines, they take God's ark. They parade it all the way from Aphek to Ashdod. They park it in a pagan temple to Dagon. Now we know that the Philistines, they worship the Ashtoreth and they worshiped Baal, a.k.a. Beelzebub. We're going to hear about those two idols for centuries to come. They're going to be a snare to Israel and she will worship them for many, many years. But Dagon, he seems to be like the God of gods. He's a Zeus-like God who's over the Philistine pantheon. He's the main dude. And in that day, when you conquered another people, you would capture their idol and you would bring it to your pagan temple and you would put those idols in your pagan temple because that was the ancient Near East way of saying, my God can beat up your God. I mean, he did. And here he is and he's displayed before you. Well, you read the story. Israel's God beats up the Philistines' God. Because when the Philistines get up early on the second day to check on their God, they, fall, they find him fallen prostrate before the ark, which is super awkward. And they grab him and kind of heft him back into place and make sure he's stable and he's okay. And then they leave and they come back on the third day and he has fallen again. This time his head and his hands are off. And so um, they try to put him back into place And it's a good lesson to us, kind of a note to self, not to worship anything that we regularly have to check on to make sure it's okay. So my investment portfolio and my possessions 
and my relationships that I have to maintain, I best not worship them. This story sounds a little bit like the Samson story. I don't know if you remember that from Judges. Samson was a judge. He fought the Philistines. He did battle with the Philistines. We actually think that Samson and Samuel overlapped a little bit the way that the history goes. And Samson ultimately fell. He was captured by the Philistines. They brought him to where? Dagon's temple to prove that their God could beat up Israel's God. They placed him in the center of there. Samson prays that God would give him his strength back. He pulls down that temple and he kills 3,000 Philistines. It's a nod back to Samson, but really both of those stories are a look forward to Jesus's story. I want you to stop me if the ark in Dagon's temple sounds familiar. Listen to this. God's incarnate presence on earth here as the ark offers himself in sinner's stead to absorb the penalty of exile. He spends three days and two nights in a tomb-like temple and on the morning of the third day, everything has changed. The dark hour of apparent defeat is really the bright dawn of glory. Dagon may have nipped at God's heels, but God has crushed his head. Does that sound familiar to you? Poor Dagon, he's named 10 times in five verses. You hear his name constantly, but after this encounter, he all but disappears from the Bible. He's mentioned one more time in Chronicles, but other than that, he's finished. Only the gods below him kind of live on in Israel's worship. You can't make this stuff up. The Bible is telling one tight story cover to cover that the punishment, the banishment, the exile we deserve for sin is absorbed on God himself in our stead and that powers and principalities that threaten and menace us, they are defeated in him. That's what God promised in Genesis chapter 3 when he said to the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He promised that this would happen. He previews this in passages like ours. He accomplishes it in his son, in his death and resurrection. And then he unpacks it again and again in the New Testament so we won't miss what's happening. One story, one victory, cover to cover in our Bibles. There are technical theological terms for two faces of our salvation that we see here, that we see again in what Jesus has done for us. Their technical terms are penal substitutionary atonement and Christus victor. If you take those terms and that Latin around the water cooler tomorrow, you're going to impress your friends and family. I mean, that's cool to talk about. Penal substitutionary atonement means that Jesus' death absorbed God's wrath. He was our substitute. He took God's wrath. He has paid for our sins. Christus victor, Christ our victor, means that Jesus' death defeated powers and principalities. You can actually play those two sides of the same coin off each other and produce a bunch of different heresies. You're able to do that in your free time. But, but the point here is that the death of Christ both satisfies God's wrath and the death of Christ punches the devil and his works in the face. 
And both of those are important for the story of salvation. And both of those are essential to us as we live our Christian lives. One of the tight places that pulls both of those things together is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. This is a great little paragraph to study on your own time. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Here they are. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross, penal substitutionary atonement. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Christus Victor. In Samuel's day, God absorbs the penalty of sin and God breaks the power of sin, which Israel wasn't able to do. In Jesus' day, He absorbs the penalty of sin and he breaks the power of sin, which we, the new Israel, were not able to do. This is the fruit of Jesus' victory. Believer, if in your life you begin to experience something of freedom from the penalty of sin, like you really believe the assurance of forgiveness, that we are free from sin and fear and shame, that there's no hiding of our wrongdoing, but it's bringing it to light because Jesus' blood pays for it all. We are the fruit of his freeing us from the penalty of sin that he took upon himself. And as we begin to experience power over the same sins that ensnare us day after day, week after week, we are a testament to the fact that Jesus' death has Broken the power of sin. Penalty of sin, power of sin, both have been addressed in the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. You experience that? Freedom from shame, freedom from addiction, and you are laying claim to the work of Jesus. And if he can break penalty and he can break power, then we are assured that he can free us from the very presence of sin in our lives, on that great day. It is his victory, his glory, his righteousness, now and forevermore. Let's pray together. Jesus, you have taken the penalty of sin. Why, why, why do your children wallow in fear and shame? Jesus, you've broken the power of sin. Why do your children, we, your children, act as if we are still ensnared by the evil one? Lord God, I pray that your victory over sin and death would be felt in our hearts, would be felt in our lives, that we would see its grace and its power, and it would change us. Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.